Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It is a joy to be with you this morning. I want to take a minute and uh, thank Steve Springstead for this last Sunday. I thought he did a fantastic job. <clears throat> I called him Saturday morning. <clears throat> I said, Steve, Doug, what's going on? Well, Steve, I, I've got strep throat and I really can't <coughs> do much. And I had said to my wife that morning, I think I can make it Sunday morning. And she said, well, yeah, if you're going to empty the first six rows when you get up to speak, they're going to be in the spit zone and they're not going to want to catch what you've got. So thankfully, Steve was willing to step in. And uh, you know what, what's exciting about um, his message last week was it really came from the heart. When you give a guy one day to prepare to speak at a church, uh, you know it's got to come from the heart. And uh, I thought he did a great job. So, uh, Steve, wherever you are this morning, thank you very much. It, it is a privilege and a joy for me to be back with you this morning as we begin our journey through 2 Corinthians uh, called The Transforming Journey. And I'd, I'd like to kick it off this morning with uh, a, a video uh, from the Bible Project, uh, which is about 2 Corinthians. Now, thankfully for you, you're not going to get the full nine yards this morning. You only get the first three to four minutes of the entire video. But then I also want to share a story with you that kind of orients us not just to the book, but to the first chapter that we're going to be in, which is 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 11. So at this point, if you could kind of direct your attention up to the screens, we're going to take a look at an overview of what we're looking at this morning, and then I want to share a story with you as we get into the first 11 verses of 2 Corinthians. Let's look. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called 2nd or 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to correct these problems. And it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit. And after that, he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most but not all of the Corinthians realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul. They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter's been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. Let's dive in and you'll see how it all works. So Paul opens up by thanking the God of all mercy and comfort who brought peace and encouragement to him and the Corinthians during this time of division and dispute. He acknowledges that things have been tense since his painful visit, and he makes clear he's forgiven them. He wants an open and honest relationship. But why had they rejected Paul in the first place? Well, we discover later in this letter that the Corinthians had disregarded Paul as a leader. He was poor, he earned a meager living through manual labor, he was under constant persecution and suffering, he was often homeless, and to top it off, he wasn't a very impressive public speaker. And so once the Corinthians were exposed to other, more wealthy, impressive Christian leaders, they started to think less of Paul, they were actually ashamed of him. 
So Paul responds first by showing that their elevation of these leaders simply because of their wealth and eloquence is a betrayal of Jesus. It shows a totally distorted value system. True Christian leadership, Paul says, is not about status or self-promotion. Paul depicts himself and the other apostles as captive slaves to King Jesus, who's leading them on a procession of triumph. Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but rather to point people to the one who is. Jesus. He then alludes to the recent demand of the Corinthians that he provide some letters of recommendation to prove his authority and credentials, and this is ridiculous to Paul. Their church wouldn't even exist if he hadn't started it, and so he says they are his proof of genuine leadership. They are his letter of recommendation. He cleverly quotes from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, saying that God's Spirit has written his letter of recommendation on their hearts as his new covenant people. The Corinthians shouldn't need any more proof than that. Now, the mention of the new covenant, it leads Paul into a long comparison between the old covenant between God and Israel that was mediated by Moses and the new covenant between God and the Corinthians mediated by Jesus and the Spirit. The old covenant made at Mount Sinai, it was truly glorious. It made Moses himself shine with God's glory, but that glory eventually faded. Not to mention the fact that the laws of that covenant were ineffective at truly transforming Israel. But the new covenant, by comparison, is even more glorious because the resurrected Jesus is the very glory of God and he lives on forever. And it's his spirit that's now transforming people to become more faithful just like Jesus himself. Now this all sounds amazing. I mean, who doesn't want to share in God's own glory? But Paul goes on to show how the paradox of the cross turns upside down the Corinthians' ideas of glory and success. After all, Jesus' glorious exaltation as king took place through his suffering, execution, and death. On the cross, Jesus revealed God's salvation. He died for the sins of the world to reconcile people to God. But the cross does even more. It reveals God's character. He's a being of utter self-giving, suffering love that seeks the well-being of others. The cross also reveals a new cruciform way of life. And Paul's goal is that his life and ministry imitates the cross. So although his apostolic career has been marked by humility, suffering, by poverty, it was all to serve the Corinthians. And so when they disapprove of Paul's poverty and suffering, they disapprove of Jesus too. Paul's way of life and leadership is actually the proof that he authentically represents the crucified and risen Jesus. Paul really wants to reconcile with the Corinthians, but he won't let things lie until they've been transformed and embrace this upside-down paradox of the cross. That last line <clears throat> is really what all of 2 Corinthians is about. Let me read it for you again. God won't let things lie until we have been transformed and embrace this upside-down paradox of the cross. That is, as Paul goes on later on to explain in 2 Corinthians, that true spiritual maturity comes only through suffering. The story I want to share with you orients us to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, would you open them to 2 Corinthians 1 and listen as I read this story for you of a young man describing his life and his wife's life. Now, all of the details are true. I've condensed it down a little bit just to fit into this morning. But he entitles this letter to his family, The Darkest Year of My Life. 
A year ago, he writes, I started battling deep depression. In life, it's difficult to accept what you can't fully control. Would you agree with that? It's difficult to accept the things you can't control. But after last year, years of unexplained pain, my wife was finally diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease. The diagnosis was a sigh of relief because now we knew what we were working with. But she continues to be in pain every day. She needs to spend a majority of the day in bed, has chronic fatigue, and needs my help to care for her. As an elementary school teacher, she finally had to quit her job because the pain was so bad. The disease, he writes, affects our everyday lives so severely that normal things like grocery shopping, riding in a car, or visiting with people cause her severe distress and make her so fatigued that she'll need to lay in bed for the rest of the day or even several days. We've been together for six years. Of all that time, she's been sick for five and a half of those years. I have never known a healthy wife. That's a harsh reality. And it can often feel like there's no hope. And then, as if battling a chronic disease wasn't difficult enough, one day, she started to experience horrific pain in her face and couldn't function because of it. It got so bad, we went to the ER where we learned that she had trigeminal neuralgia, a condition that is nicknamed by doctors the suicide disease because of the excruciating pain. For months, she literally got none to just a few hours of sleep a night because of the pain and, and associated symptoms and thoughts of, why us? Life isn't fair. Where is God? would wash over me like strong ocean waves. And on top of this, he writes, I was working to finish my bachelor's degree. It had taken years of part-time coursework to finish my business administration degree. As I approached the end of my coursework this year, I nearly reached the breaking point, trying to manage school on top of all of my other responsibilities. I'd spend nights and weekends during uh, the day studying, and one Saturday morning after breakfast, I sat down to review my coursework for the day, and the feeling of paralysis rushed through my body. I ended up having a mental breakdown. My body agreed with the rapid heart rate, visible shaking, crying, anger, and not being able to think properly. I felt so helpless and hated myself for not being able to manage my responsibilities with more ease and grace. You think he's being a little hard on himself? What I didn't realize was that I was burning out from the weight and stress of my life. This young man at that point was able to go to a therapist. He was able to get some help, but he's not out of the woods yet. And as his final line uh, tells us, he says, I finally opened up to my family about my struggles. I don't know where I'd be without them. It's, it's not easy to be vulnerable, but my desire is to be an encouragement to those who may be in the midst of battling feelings like mine right now or in the future. You know, in his journey in life, he's not alone. There are millions of people, not even just here in the United States, but around the world who are struggling with very dark feelings of depression, with um, difficult life circumstances. In fact, very likely this morning, some of you may be here, and you are feeling like it's been really, really overwhelming lately. It's been discouraging. And perhaps not this week, or maybe even not, not even last month, but at some point in your life, you, you have struggled with feeling seriously squeezed by life circumstances. 
It may be that your doctor has informed you that your dream of having children will never happen because of this recent medical diagnosis. Perhaps you've heard that your eyesight is failing and you'll be blind within a year. It may be that your wife of 40 plus years has just been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer and she now has a lifespan of two weeks to one month. You may feel like life is hopeless, like you have no idea of what you're gonna do next or how things are gonna turn out. The demands at work are so overwhelming and your manager has no idea of the amount of pressure she's putting on you or the lack of support she's giving you. Perhaps as a student, you survived COVID and the uh, stay-at-home restrictions, the masking, the distancing, and yet the amount of homework that still remains to be done, the amount of distancing from friends and relationships that have been cut off, and the amount of work that still remains, the work, workload, the stress of it is overwhelming. It may be that a family member you always counted on to do a lot of the things in life, your husband, your older brother, your mom, your son, or your daughter, has suddenly passed away. And you feel overwhelmed. Not just by their absence, but by the things that remain that they did for you so consistently, and now they're on you. All of these scenarios that we're talking about are true in Trinity Church right now. These are prayer requests that have come in to the elders and the pastors and ministry leaders from the last couple of weeks of prayer requests that have been submitted. And you begin to listen to some of the things that we're going through as a body of Christ, as individuals, the pressure, the difficulties, the circumstances. And you begin to think, you know, what do we do with these things? How do we handle life's challenges and weaknesses? Well, that's what 2 Corinthians is written for. It's written to the weaknesses of humanity, and it offers us a path forward that is unlike any other. I hope you have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians, because we're going to see in these passages a description of a transforming journey with Jesus that addresses the weaknesses we feel, the distresses, the struggles, and we're going to exchange them literally for the presence of God himself. We're going to throw up on the screen the key verse in 2 Corinthians. You find it at the end of the book, actually, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. And I want to read them for you as you see them up on the screen and as we listen to them. This is where Paul is writing about a physical disability in his life, and it's an ailment that is so persistent and so distressing that he describes it, he labels it a harassing messenger of Satan himself, a deep sea fish hook in his flesh. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord Jesus about, about this, that it would leave me. You ever prayed that kind of prayer? God, I don't know that I can stand this a whole lot longer. Please. Would you remove this from my life? He says, three times I prayed that. But each time God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Let that soak in for a moment. God's power is made perfect, mature, fully seasoned in the midst of weakness. That's a great message for us as we get into this book. 
He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of God may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What can we as Christians do when we feel burdened and ready to throw in the towel? How do we find encouragement and strength in our relationships in life when we do feel overwhelmed? Paul writes to us in this first chapter, verses 1 through 11, and he tells us what to do. He gives us three things to hang on to, and this morning we're going to start at verses 8 through 11 and work our way back to verse 1. So take a look at verses 8 and 11, and what we're going to find here is that strength to endure tough times begins with reliance on God. Look at verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You know, in the Greek language, there are ten different words for suffering. (laughs) They must have had a very difficult culture. Ten different words for different kinds of suffering. But what I want you to notice in these four verses is that Paul uses five of those words to describe his suffering. So he digs down deep into the Greek language and he says, yeah, there's a lot of words for suffering, but five of them are true of me right now. If you have your notes in front of you this morning, you'll see them there. The first one is pathema, and it was a word that talked about experiencing evil and feeling its emotional suffering and pain. It's like becoming the victim of a violent crime, and if you've ever had that type of thing happen to you, you know the feeling of suffering, that feeling of intense uh, pain that comes from evil. He says, this is but been true of what's been happening in my life. The second one, if you're a landscaper, is a very, very familiar term for you. It's the word thalipsis, which literally means pressurized. So when the water comes into your home from the front, from the street, it's at a certain water pressure, usually pretty high if you're uh, fortunate. And then it goes into your landscaping PVC pipes, and it narrows down. And guess what? The pressure goes up. Thalipsis talks about being uh, stretched, being pressurized, uh, being um, squeezed and compressed. Paul says that's how we felt. The third term is bereo, which means burden beyond one's ability to bear. It's a grievous weight, a heavy burden. It's an elephant sitting on your chest. 
just the weight of life's struggles. The fourth one is Usain, which talks about utter despair, hopelessness, perplexity, a total blank, foggy-headed sense of, I have no idea how to move ahead and escape the pain I'm in. I don't know. And the last one is actually a legal term. It was the term that a court would issue for a death penalty. So a criminal had been convicted and the death penalty was passed on and there was no escaping it. And Paul says, this is how I've been feeling. At this moment in his life, Paul was uh, going through something so horrific that it made him feel violated and squeezed and suffocating under an intolerable burden. He didn't know what to do next, and he felt like, yeah, I'm definitely going to die. This is, this is the end. It's interesting he doesn't tell us what it was. It's almost like it's so hard that he can't really dig back into it. He just says, this is what I've been struggling with. Keep in mind that Paul was no stranger to uh, pain and suffering. If you take a look in 2 Corinthians a little further along, in fact, you could take a look uh, in your Bibles to chapter 11. I'll read it for you aloud, but he describes in 2, chapter, or 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 30, the things that he's gone through in his life. Listen to this. Are they servants of Christ? Talking about the super apostles in Corinth that were criticizing him. I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. The Jews had figured out that 40 lashes would kill you, so they gave you 39. Five times I received that at the hands of the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. That's one of my greatest fears. <laughs> Being stuck out in the middle of the ocean somewhere and you can't see land. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Do you get the sense he was in danger? And he goes on. In toil, hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Wow. Anybody here have a longer list than that? <laughs> That list does not include what he's talking about in verses 8 through 11. That list was written before 2 Corinthians happened. It's a litany of the entire list of suffering he had encountered. And then in verses 8 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 1, he talks about something that was even worse than that, more horrific than that, more painful than that, so much so that he says, I can't even put a name on it. So how did he handle it? And if he can handle it, might we also be able to handle some of the struggles we go through? Look at verses 9 and 10. He tells us right here. This one event, he says, but that, this one event, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God 
who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again, either now or in the resurrection. He relied on God. And I think we need to understand, men and women, that God doesn't always deliver us from our difficulties. Even Paul was eventually beheaded by the Romans. God didn't deliver him out of that. And there are times in our lives when the suffering we go through, the struggle, the pain, the discomfort, the fears, the wounds, aren't going to be fully resolved. In fact, for some of us, we're going to have to live a lifetime with them, and he doesn't remove them from us. My mother-in-law was just such an example of that. Um, my name for her was Mamani, because that's the South African word for mother. And so Mamani became a very important person in my life, not because she had a life that, where everything went well, but because she had a life where very, well, a lot of things didn't go well. Her husband was uh, a seminary uh, student in Asbury Seminary back in Kentucky, and she was putting him through seminary by working as a seamstress in a large uh, sewing factory. And in the course of that work, she was diagnosed with a disease. It was undiagnosed for 10 years. But it began to eat away at her heart and her lungs to where she developed one quarter lung capacity. So she was out of breath a lot. This is one of the reasons my wife became a respiratory therapist, was to help her mom. She ran out of energy a lot, and she had been a basketball player in high school and just very physically active, but this disease robbed her of her ability to engage in a lot of the activities that her family loved to do and she enjoyed doing. And by the time I met Lisa, when I was uh, just after high school, they had begun to determine her health not by how often she was in the hospital, they figured out how healthy what she was by how often she was out of the hospital. She was in the hospital more than she was out. And her family prayed and prayed that God would deliver her of this disease, histoplasmosis. And he didn't. In fact, as the years went on, other diseases climbed on the shoulders of histoplasmosis, where she began to get diabetes. She got peripheral neuropathy. She had a leg amputation. It was like a snowball over the years. But what was interesting to me was despite all of their prayers, where they might have said, God is unfair. Doesn't he notice? Doesn't he really care about us? Is he unable? Or worse yet, is he punishing some past wrong deed that has been done? Mamani, at least that I'm aware of, never persisted in that vein of thinking. In fact... She chose to believe three things. And by the way, as I got to know Mamani, I realized she was the most joyful person I had ever met. Go figure. She was filled with joy, despite all of her disabilities. And I think a big part of it was she, she believed these three things. Let me give them to you. Number one, she believed that God's word never fails. God's word never fails. It's always true, and a promise is a promise. So she never questioned whether God meant what he said when he said, I'll always be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And she chose to live her life by faith in his character and will rather than by sight and the realities of her struggles. Now, she did 
ponder and talk a lot about his timing. And like the psalmist, she would cry out, How long, O Lord? When are you going to intervene? But she always trusted that his word was true. Second, she always believed that she was deeply loved by God, that his love was not interrupted by the struggles she was going through. And she also realized that God's primary purpose for her life was not to make her happy. It was to make her holy. And that to become holy, she had to suffer. Because suffering is that ingredient in our lives that burns out the dross, that takes all of that self-centered tendency of life and removes it. In fact, the Apostle Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 4.1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has, and notice this, has ceased from sin. There's something about suffering that when we engage in it from the right perspective begins to push away from us the tendency to be self-centered, the tendency towards sin. And he goes on to say, so we then uh, live the rest of our life in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Suffering is that main ingredient for burning into our hearts the holiness of God. And yet, folks, isn't it interesting? Suffering is the one element in our discipleship and in our spiritual formation that is consistently overlooked. It is most frequently unwanted, and it is most commonly seen as an absence of the love of God in my life. We push back against suffering. Because who wants to go through it? And yet God takes suffering and he says, this is the one thing that you need in your life to become holy and separate from sin. This week I uh, was talking with Jay Springstead, who's a member of our church here, and he's a marriage and family therapist. And we explored together this whole idea of human suffering because he sees it a lot as a family therapist. And he shared with me, he says, you know, I deal with a lot of hurting people who um, struggle with God's promise of comfort um, because they, they sometimes end up feeling that, that they're not getting his comfort. He says this is true even if they're well-informed, if they're obedient, if they are uh, inviting God's sweet grace into their life as they go through their struggles. But he said the brokenness of abuse or neurological damage or physical pain, it just sometimes seems to prevent them from feeling the love of God. And that can lead them to believe that ultimately what other Christians get, if they're not getting it, there's something wrong with them or God just doesn't love them in the same way that he loves everyone else. And we wrestled with that a bit this week because that's true. Some people don't experience or feel that comfort from God as easily as others do. We realized at the end of our conversation that a whole lot of our experience of God's love and truth, these two bookends that my mother-in-law looked at and said, I, I always believe God's word is true. I always believe God loves me. But in the midst of it is this suffering that I have to deal with. Our experience of that suffering in how we view it in our minds is more important than how we feel it in our hearts. And that was something Mom Yoder figured out. 
Think about this for a minute in your life. Think back to something that has caused you pain in your life. It can be relational. It can be emotional, mental. It can be work-related, school-related, family-related. Think about that struggle and these bookends and ask yourself, have I ever come to a point where I begin to say, well, I've got to push back against God's truth because this experience is so difficult, it doesn't seem to reflect the truth of God. Or perhaps it was this pushing back and eroding of God's love. If, if this is happening in my life, is God's love really that relevant in my life? Is it that present in my life? Because that's the struggle we have when we suffer, is we're not quite sure how to deal with the love of God and the truth of God. But Mom Yoder had a third belief that I noticed in her life, and I want to share it with you this morning, as we think about suffering and we think about God's comfort, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1. Her third belief was this. In between those two realities of life, the truth of God and the love of God, there is a process of life that creates a totally new perspective. Romans chapter 5 describes this process. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained uh, access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now think about these for a minute. These are eternal realities. These aren't necessarily temporal realities. Paul is saying there are things that God has done for us that, if we can throw that back up there for a second, that are in this life, but they go beyond this life. We have been justified by faith, declared not guilty in the presence of God. Amen. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is no longer angry at our sins. We are no longer under his condemnation. We've been freed by that or from that in Christ. And we've obtained access into this grace in which we stand. All of the richness of God's relationship is available to us. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That ultimate deliverance that we find in the presence of God. So those are the eternal realities. But look at verses 3 and 4. He says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing, there's the mind, not the heart. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. There's a process here. And interestingly, there's no stopwatch attached to it. There's no chronology. Suffering produces endurance, produces proven character. How long? We don't know. All we do know is that this is a process that brings us to a point of hope and love from Jesus Christ. The word for suffering here is that Greek word philipsis, which is that pressurized, internal squeezing and compression of life. He says, when you go through suffering, guess what? Endurance is the result. This is the ability to exert yourself continually, remain active for a long period of time, regardless of the trauma, regardless of the wounds, regardless of the fatigue. And it produces proven character. This word is the word dakma. We get our word document from it. It produces something that is measurable and valuable. I lived down in uh, San Diego before we came up to Yucaipa, 
had a ministry with a lot of uh, the Navy personnel, including a lot of Navy SEALs. Good friends with the commander of the 5th Fleet, who was the intelligence officer for the Navy SEALs. And he described for me at one point Hell Week. If you've ever heard about it, it's actually been in the news recently, a young man died after Hell Week. And of course, that's a, a tragedy in itself. But Hell Week is, is something the Navy does with the Navy SEALs. It's the seventh week of 24 weeks of training. And in that seventh week, after you've been there for the first six, getting acclimated to the whole program, beginning your physical uh, training, they put you through five and a half days of incredibly punishing physical training. In the course of those five and a half days, you get four hours of sleep. You run 30 miles a day. You're doing sit-ups, you're doing push-ups, you're carrying these huge telephone poles with five other guys up and down the beach. You're putting uh, inflatable boats on your head and running into the surf and coming back out of the surf. You're doing strategic um, exercises and you're being yelled at the whole time and live ammunition and each one of these BUDS classes gets whittled down to 25%. 75% of the guys quit. They go over and they ring the bell called voluntary dismissal. You're done. But what's interesting is at the end of that hell week, you have proven character. And they do this to find out who is going to be a Navy SEAL for the remaining 17 weeks of training. That same experience is what God uses to bring about in our lives, not exactly the same experience, by the way, but... That type of suffering, that type of, can you endure this? Can you prove that you have the character? God uses that type of process for us to produce in us proven character. My mother-in-law was not a Navy SEAL. Not many of us are. But when we endure the suffering, it produces molded character, and for her, it produced the quality of joy. Verse 5. It's up on the screen for you. What happens after this process? You get proven character, but look at what happens after this. And proven character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Leave that up there for a minute, guys, if you would. Hope is the great-grandchild of suffering. So when you suffer, the child is endurance. The grandchild is proven character. The great-grandchild is hope. And we look at that and we might say, well, gosh, I don't want to wait till my great-grandkid comes around to stop suffering. But the point is, there is a connection. And there, the point is also, we don't know how long that connection is. But hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out. That's a Greek tense, that is what's called the perfect tense. It means something happened in the past, way over here, and it's had a continuing, ongoing result that never ends. So back when suffering began, God poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And when suffering started over here, even though we didn't sense the presence of God, he was there in his love expressed through the Holy Spirit. That poured out is like taking a fresh uh, container of lemonade and, and pouring it into a frosty mug for somebody who's working in your yard and it just overflows and you bring it out to them, you go, here you go. 
And they go, oh, gosh, thank you so much. God's love has been poured out, and it continues to be poured out into our hearts because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So that in our suffering, God meets us there. Look at verse 11. Paul says there's something else that we need when we suffer, and that is the prayers of others who care about us. You must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Folks, when you submit a prayer to Trinity Church, it doesn't just sit somewhere in an office. It's actually pushed on to the elder board. It's pushed on to the pastors. It's pushed to the ministry directors, so long as you've given us permission to pray about it together. And they pray about these things with the intention that a blessing would come into your life because God listens to the prayers of his saints. And Paul says, we need that kind of help. In fact, eight different books of the New Testament, when Paul's writing, eight of them, he says, I need your prayers. He says that in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Philemon, 2 Corinthians. Time and again, he says, I need you to pray for us. So strength to endure begins with reliance on God. Strength to endure tough times requires perspective from God. Take a look at verses uh, 4, 5, 6, and 7. It says, The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that you share in the sufferings. As you share in them, you also share in our comfort. So what is this idea of comfort? Well, in the Greek language, it's two words. It's parakaleo. It means to call someone alongside. That's very simple. To call someone, kaleo, alongside, para or parakaleo. It's the most common word for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the paraclete, who comes alongside of us. And interestingly, comfort has much more to do with the presence than the presence of God. Comfort has more to do with God's presence with us than what he gives us or what he takes from us, what he does for us. So I brought some um, bags this morning, sandbags. You've probably been looking at them, thinking, what in the world are those for? I also brought my burden-bearing barbecue bib. My wife said, you're going to mess up your shirt if you start lifting those things. But sometimes in life, we begin to gather burdens. And I've listed some of them here. We've got disabilities. We have pressure, debt, desperation, sadness, and fears. And you can list your own sandbags for yourself, but I've had to deal with fears in my life. Ugh. I actually went down and picked up some pea gravel and three-quarter inch gravel yesterday. Nearly threw my back out. 
<laughs> Didn't know you could buy this by the shovelful, by the way, but you can. So I've got my burden of fear, and you know what? I'm becoming pretty comfortable with it. I've been carrying it around for a while, and, and yet at times it just does seem a little bit heavy. Oh, and by the way, I also have the baggage of the pressures of life. Ugh. Ugh. Okay, now this is getting heavy. But I've got more pressures. I've got more stress. I have more desperation and sadness. And, and what we begin to find is we can't carry it alone. We need parakaleo. We need someone to come alongside of us like these three gentlemen right here. <laughs> and the other three right there. Guys, would you mind coming up and help? I need a parakaleo. I figure if a 65-year-old man can carry this, guess what? Hopefully you guys can as well. <laughs> so here's some pressure. Thank you. Got some disability here. There you go. You can name your own disability. Who's got student loans? <laughs> All right, there's your debt. Any of you sad? There we go. This, he's not sad. Look at the smile. Uh, and last of all, desperation. Oh, man. All right. Oh, I feel better already. <laughs> this is your Pericoleo crew. Would you give him a hand? Now, don't go anywhere, guys. I'm so thankful for our young adults here at Trinity in a lot of ways. But you know, all of these things are things that we can individually carry. Some of you have two or three or four of these. Some of you may have more. And we go through life just bearing it. And God says, you know, you need, you need someone to come alongside. Now, we add the word to help, but that's not part of parakaleo. Parakaleo is to come alongside, to call someone to come alongside. So these guys are carrying all of this for me, but you know what? I would still receive comfort, parakaleo, if, and you guys can just put those right down over there if you don't mind, but stay right here. Just go ahead and put them on the ground. Lay your burdens down at Calvary. Isn't that the phrase? All right. Now, if I'd asked them to come up to, not to help, but just to come up, these guys might have said to me, well, Doug, actually, we think you need to hold on to those things. You know what? Those are going to produce in your life endurance. In fact, they're going to produce proven character in your life. So we're not going to help you carry them. What? But I need help. Well, maybe the help I need is for these guys to come alongside of me and share their stories. How God has ministered to them. How he's changed them with their burdens. And they're not going to necessarily carry my burdens for me but they might say, let us share the joy that God has given us in the midst of our struggles. Let us help you see how proven character is being developed in your life so that at the end of it, what I needed was not their presence, E-N-T-S. What I needed was their presence with me. In fact, I think this deserves a picture. Guys, can you kind of crowd in here right over there? Thank you. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, go ahead and leave them right there. 
We're gonna have the ladies carry those back up here afterwards. <laughs> Does that make sense? Sometimes that's what God does with us. He comes and he says, Doug, I know you're feeling pressured. You need to stay that way for a while because you haven't yet endured to the point where you've learned the lessons I need you to learn. You haven't yet developed in the character qualities I want to see in your life. So, Doug, I'm going to let you stay under pressure. I'm going to let you stay under debt. I'm going to let you stay under fear for this period of time because remember, there's no chronology to this process. Suffering produces endurance, produces proven character, produces hope. We don't know when that'll end. But thankfully, God does. And his presence with us, pouring out his love through the Holy Spirit, is what makes a difference. Warren Wiersbe has a really great quote. We're going to throw it up on the screen for you. He says, God has to work in us before he can work through us. Learning God's truth and getting it into our head is one thing, but getting it into our character is something else. That requires trials. So God always prepares us for what he is preparing for us. Let me read that part again. God is preparing us for what he is preparing for us. And part of that preparation is suffering. There's an interesting reality to God's grace, and that is the fact that you can't store it up. It's not like a fire extinguisher you can throw on the wall, and when you have a fire, you pull it off, and there you go. God's grace cannot be stored up. Because if we could store up God's grace, guess what we would do when we get in the middle of a trial? I would reach into my storehouse of grace that God has given me, and I would apply that to my problem. And I wouldn't really need God in that moment because I've got this storehouse of grace that he's given me that I can resort to. We know this is true because in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So folks, as you and I suffer, God releases his goodness and his power and his love and companionship into our hearts and into a conversion of endurance and proven character. And that's sometimes why we don't feel like the suffering has been removed is because it hasn't been. Third and last, strength to endure tough times results in praise of God. So go back to verses 1 through 3. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the prayer, verse 3. Blessed. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Prayer is essential to handling, or praise is essential to handling tough times. We bless God because he sent Jesus Christ to suffer for us and to save us. 
We bless God because he is the source of all mercies, which is that emotional, compassionate hurting with us. And he is the father of all comfort. His presence, and sometimes even his presence, E-N-T-S. So has life been hard for you lately? By the way, if you're sitting here this morning or you're online listening or you're out in the patio and you're saying, actually, no, life is pretty good right now. Praise God. But the trials are coming. Because suffering is what changes us into the image of Jesus. If you're going through suffering now, God says, I want you to know I am with you. My truth never changes. My love never changes. This time of pain will someday end, whether it's in eternity, through the resurrection, or here and now. But in the midst of it, trust me, let me pour my love into your heart through the, Lord, through, uh, the uh, Holy Spirit who indwells us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there are times, Lord, that we, we come to you for help and we realize that we have to truly rely on you, that our own resources are insufficient, our own past experiences don't tell us enough about what's happening now to understand how to act or what to do. Father, you want us to see suffering from a very different perspective. And that is that suffering is a required element for holiness. And if we want to be holy, then we need to go through these difficult moments in life. But Lord, we also know that you meet us there, that your love has been poured out through the Holy Spirit. And even when we don't sense it, you are there to help us, to grow us, to mature us, and make us like Jesus. So this morning, Father, as we look at our lives and as we also look at your truth and your word, would you help us to do just that, to rely on you and not our own perspective? Father, meet us in the midst of our pain. Encourage us. Help us to be patient. And Father, help us also to rejoice in our suffering because we know what it does. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.